Hello again. Last episode, we began to study the letter to the church at Sardis, which is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. If you missed that episode, you can hear it or see it below. It's still here on the podcast. Now, what we saw there was that the church at Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but was actually spiritually dead. It was socially alive, but spiritually dead, or almost so. And the glorified Lord Jesus Christ is dictating this letter, one of seven, uh, to the churches in Asia Minor. And uh, he is telling this church that there is a way back. There is a way to be revived. And he sets out a five-point plan, if I can call it that, by which they may recover their status as a true and genuine Christian church. He tells them that they must, first of all, be watchful. Secondly, they must strengthen such spiritual life that still remains. Thirdly, they must remember how they received the gospel when it first came to them with the enthusiasm and understanding of what it was all about. Fourthly, having remembered the doctrine and practice of the apostles, they were to hold them fast and not abandon them. And finally, summing all of that up, they were to repent. They were to change their mind, change their attitude. But then in the following verse, having warned them that if they didn't become watchful, they would experience a a severe judgment. He says, therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. And the Lord Jesus is not here talking about his second coming, but simply he was warning them that he would come in judgment upon them if they did not take to heart the advice and directions he had given them to recover their spiritual life. Uh, But then he goes on, and this is where we start today, with verse 4. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He is now addressing those few people in the church at Sardis who had clung on 
to the apostles' doctrine, who had followed the teaching of the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who were true Christians, in other words. And there are two things particularly I want to point out about this verse. First of all, in speaking to this small minority, he says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And it's interesting that he should use the word names. That's a word used in the New Testament, always, almost always, to refer to proper names. That is to say, the names which identify each one of us and differentiate us from others. You might be talking to someone and referring to a friend by the name of Jeff. And you pause and realize that there's another Jeff in your circle of contacts. And so you say, oh, I'm talking about Jeff Smith, not Jeff Brown. We differentiate, we distinguish one another by our proper names, as they are called. Now, he could have said, you have a few people, or you have a small group, but he doesn't. He says, you have a few names. And that indicates that the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about individuals who are known to him by name. In other words, he is demonstrating a familiarity and intimacy with these people who have remained faithful to his teaching. And that is a great comfort. The Lord knows us individually. He doesn't deal with us as a, as a group, as a company. He, he does deal with churches, of course, and, and, and others in a composite way, but he also, and at the same time, is always dealing with us as individuals known to him by name. In uh, John's Gospel, chapter 10, when uh, the Lord is calling himself the Good Shepherd, he goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And there is a, a, a very wonderful verse in the Old Testament, because this concept of Christ knowing us by name is not limited to the New Testament. We, we have it quite clearly in, for example, Isaiah chapter 43 and the first four verses. Let me read them to you. But now thus saith the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine.
when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. And so he goes on. But here, you see, uh, although he's addressing the nation, he emphasizes that he has called them by their name. In other words, there's this personal intimacy. And that becomes quite clear when he says, when you walk, uh, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. That intimacy involves companionship. And so it is at Sardis, and so it is in every circumstance where we are faithful to Christ through, through whatever troubles or difficulties we may have to pass, through whatever disappointments and situations where we are perplexed and find why God is dealing with us in this manner, we have this assurance that he knows us by name, that he walks with us, as he says a little later on, speaking of this small remnant. Verse 4 again, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. Intimate knowledge, companionship, we get, of course, the same thing in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow, yet you are with me, and your rod and staff comfort me. Christ is with us in this intimate, personal, companionable manner. And that was something true of this small remnant at Sardis. Incidentally, the verse I quoted from Isaiah 43 was addressed, of course, not to the national Israel, who were not redeemed, who had no faith in God, but it was addressed to the remnant of faithful people who trusted in the word of God and believed in the God of Abraham, the remnant that was always present throughout Old Testament days. So there we are, that's the first thing I want to emphasize, that Christ knows us by name, he treats us as individuals, he provides companionship in the midst of difficulties, and he walks with us, we walk with him. It's a personal thing, and it's a thing of great comfort to those who will believe and accept it. Now, the second thing I want to draw your attention to in verse 4 of Revelation 3 is this. The few names, even in Sardis, have not defiled their garments. And the use of clothing to describe or provide a metaphor of spiritual condition uh, 
is another very general principle in, in Scripture. Uh, here we have, of course, the statement, they shall walk with me in white. And white garments throughout the book of Revelation are indicative of righteousness. They are a symbol and a metaphor of righteousness. Uh, a few chapters on in the book of Revelation, we are told that the fine linen, which would have been white, of course, the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Saints there meaning those who are sanctified, not special Christians, but every true Christian is a saint in that sense. These people had not defiled their garments. Implication is, of course, that all the rest of the people in Sardis had defiled their garments by departing from the living God. And there is a very moving and instructive passage in the prophecy of Zechariah, and I'd like to read that to you because I think it is so important to us that we understand this. In Zechariah chapter 3 and the first five verses, Zechariah has a vision, and in this vision, God shows him Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. This isn't Joshua of the book of Joshua. This is about very much later than that, 600 years later. This is Joshua, the high priest. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. And, and that word angel, uh, when attached to the word Lord, or Yahweh, is often used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in Old Testament times. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this, pointing to Joshua, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? A brand, of course, being a, a burning stick. Not completely burned. You can get hold of one end of it, but the other end is aflame. Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered, and spoke to those who stood before him, he being now the angel of the Lord, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And then Zechariah joins in, I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. 
Now, quite clearly, Joshua is here not only representing himself in his iniquity, but being the leader, the spiritual leader of Israel, he is representing the whole nation of Israel. And he is dressed in filthy garments. Now, that that is terrible because no one is better dressed in the Old Testament than the high priest. He has ornate robes. He has a, a sash around his chest. He has a breastplate uh, glistening with jeweled stones. He has a turban. Other priests didn't have a hurt turban. He has on his shoulders epaulets with more precious stones. Uh, here was a man who in his official garments was a beauty to see and intended to be. But they were filthy. So this was such a a terrible sight to anyone in those days. The high priest, in all the beauty of his garments or raiment, was filthy. And that dirtiness was a metaphor for the sin of Israel. And what makes things worse, of course, is that Satan is standing by, uh, accusing him and uh, opposing him. It's, it's a courtroom scene, really, with the angel of the Lord being the judge, Joshua being the prisoner, as it were, and the devil being the prosecuting attorney. And uh, the amazing thing is this, that the judge turns not to the prisoner, uh, but to the counsel for the prosecution and says, I rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. And then he looks at Joshua and he says, is not this a brand plucked from the burning? Here is a half-burned stick. And I have, and this is the Lord speaking, I have thrust my hand into the fire to pull that stick out of the fire and prevent its complete destruction. And is not this uh, a wonderful picture of the work of atonement that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross where he thrust his hand as it were into the flames of God's judgment he there bore the sin of many says Isaiah he there was made sin says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 he was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him and this passage in Ezekiel is, is so illustrative of, so prophetic of 
the atoning work of Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his own body on the cross, who took our sin upon him, our judgment upon him, our guilt upon him, the one who, who knew no sin at all. God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so we have here a beautiful picture. First of all, the sin of man. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3. Being, he carries on, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Here is the gospel. Here is the gospel in the Old Testament. Here is the gospel in the New Testament that Christ took our sins upon him, that we might be granted by grace, not for anything we have done, not for anything we deserved, we might be granted by grace, free grace, the righteousness of God himself. And that, of course, is the only righteousness that God will accept. Because, as Isaiah again says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Filthy rags. We fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have carried us away, he says. Our righteousnesses, everything we do that seems good to us and good to other people, is not sufficient to atone for our sins. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient for that. Only the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by grace through faith is sufficient to make us acceptable in the sight of God. Well there we are, we have two very important statements. First of all that Christ is personally involved with us who are and seek to be faithful to his word and secondly that the defiled garments that every one of us wears can be taken away by grace we can be and are if we are believers brands plucked from the burning we deserve destruction but Christ suffered that we might be pulled out of that fire of God's wrath and not only saved, but also given such a wondrous standing and status in the sight of God because we have been clothed with the, and I quote Isaiah again, the garments of salvation, with the robe of righteousness. Those things don't belong to us, they belong to Christ, and he has given them to us that we might be redeemed and that we might inherit eternal life and spend eternity with him. Now there's just one other thing I need to add before we finish this session. Uh, he says, they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. Now this might be taken to 
indicate that somehow they earned their salvation. They earned this status that we have been talking about. But we must understand that there are two kinds of righteousness in the New Testament. If we read the next verse, verse 5 of the letter, we hear this, He who overcomes, he who conquers, shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, that's a little interesting, because in verse 4 he says of this remnant, They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And then he goes on to speak of their situation after death. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. For well, just a minute, they're already clothed in white garments in verse 4. So, so what's different about verse 5? Well, the answer is this, that righteousness in the New Testament is used in these two ways. First of all, as imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, which is what we've been talking about, but also practical righteousness, which is the outworking in real life and real time of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the practical righteousness is not, does not have the perfection of the imputed righteousness the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, but we do not live lives which conform precisely and continually to the example of Christ. We are still sinners. We still fail. We still make mistakes. We still need forgiveness. We still need to repent. And it is the practical righteousness that is being spoken of in verse 4. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And the worthy ones are those who do their very best to put into practice the imputed righteousness that they have received. Now, they don't succeed completely. They can never perfectly in this life reproduce the life of Christ. But they are worthy if they do their best to do so. If with the Apostle Paul, they seek to be imitators of Christ. They seek to follow his example. They won't always succeed, but they try. And therefore, they are worthy for trying. And indeed, in many cases, of course, they are worthy because the efforts they make are successful. They do imitate Christ. They do glorify his name. They do let their light so shine before men that uh, others, non-Christians and Christians alike, that the men may see their good works and glorify, not them, but their Father in heaven.
So then uh, we conclude the letter to the church at Sardis. Finishes, of course, with the usual statement. Uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's not only the people at Sardis who are to take heed to the things that are written in this letter. It is all of us. Well, we've got two more letters to study, and we'll move on to them in due course to finish the uh, complete treatment of these seven letters to the seven churches in Asia in Revelations chapters 2 and 3. Thank you.